First uh, Thessalonians has always been a, a favorite. Um, when I was a teenager, I met a man by the name of uh, Ken Jamerson. And Ken was a, he was an odd duck, to be perfectly honest with you. He was a, he was a strange man. Um, he likes chess. No, that wasn't why he was strange. Um, but he was obsessed with two things. Uh, he was obsessed with chess, loved chess. And uh, he actually, he was such a nerd that he had uh, two of the, I'm not sure what the chess master, 3000, 2000, whatever model it was, but um, you could play against the, the chess board. Uh, but he actually would play games between two chess boards and mirror the movements of the one chess board, the computer on the one against the other. And he was, he was uh, interesting like that. The other thing that he did um, is he memorized scripture. And he memorized a lot of scripture. And uh, he, at, at, at the time when I had met him, he had memorized um, all of the epistles, uh, the gospels, um, almost the entire New Testament with the exception of a couple books. And he was working on Jeremiah. He was in chapter 40 of Jeremiah when I met him. And he encouraged me. He's like, um, man, I want to challenge you to, to memorize uh, the word of God. Memorize a book of the Bible. And so I said, okay, sure, sounds good. Of course, yeah, we'll do that. Um, and so he's like, great, which one are you going to do? <laughs> and um, I'm like, man, you're putting me on the spot here. And uh, so he said, no, you've got to pick one. You've got to pick one right now, and I'm going to hold you to it. And so uh, I chose First Thessalonians. I've, the reason being, I, I've loved First Thessalonians, or in the church at Thessalonica was very uh, interesting. If you look at, even starting from its very inception, going back to Acts chapter 17, we can see the history of the church at Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was a, uh, a coastal town. It was the, the most influential town in the northern part of Greece, Macedonia. It was located being a port city, also being uh, positioned on the Ignatian Way. It was a very influential city, a city that everyone, if you were going anywhere in northern Greece, you were eventually going to go through Thessalonica. Um, it was a very wealthy city, obviously because of its uh, import and export it was a city that was uh, uh, a very large city for its time. It, it, many believe that it uh, contained over 100,000 people in its population during biblical times. Uh, but it was a city that was founded with much persecution, much uh, just stress, a lot, of, a lot of different things going on there with the church. Uh, if you uh, turn to Acts chapter 17, you don't have to, but... Uh, in Acts 17, we see the founding of the church at Thessalonica. Paul is with uh, Silas on their uh, second missionary journey, or Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, he had just come to uh, the, one of the most notable stories in, in all of the New Testament, the um, being imprisoned at Philippi. And we know that we, we understand the, his imprisonment. We understand how God delivered them out of that. Uh, and uh, also a very notable conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household uh, there in Acts chapter 16. Uh, but in Acts 17, they're here they're going on as they go on their way. They pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They come to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue uh, there at Thessalonica. Thessalonica also had a very large uh, Jewish population. And Paul, as he did on a regular basis, as his custom was, he went into this, to the synagogue and preached uh, Jesus Christ uh, and him crucified and him raised from the dead. And uh, later on in, uh, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that there were uh, many that believed uh, of the devout Greeks, of the not a few of the leading women, and uh, that, that didn't sit well with the, the Jewish leaders. And the Bible says in, uh, in verse 15, or verse 5 of chapter 17, pardon me, uh, that they, being jealous, born out of jealousy and envy in their hearts, uh, they took some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason presumably was the host of Paul and Silas as they came and, and uh, stayed there in Thessalonica. And so uh, when they weren't able to find uh, Paul and Silas, they said, well, you know, Jason, he'll suffice. <laughs> So they brought Jason and his house out to the leaders of the city, and uh, they basically charged them with sedition. These men are speaking against Caesar, uh, saying that there's another Lord, that Jesus Christ is king. 
And so here, uh, after they have been fined by the, the elders of the city, they were taken money, and money was taken from them as security, and they let them go. Uh, Paul and Silas, however, had to escape from Thessalonica uh, secretively, and, and immediately uh, they were sent away by night from Thessalonica. And there they went to Berea, and of course, as Paul did, he did the same thing all over again. He went to the synagogue, and he preached, and uh, many were converted. Uh, but it's interesting to notice, even in Berea, that the, the leaders of the, of the Jewish community and the leaders of the synagogue there from Thessalonica heard that he went to Berea, and so they did, they did the same thing. They said, let's go down there and let's cause some trouble down in Berea. Uh, after leaving Berea, uh, Paul comes to Athens, and here he is at Athens, and of course this is a notable story, his interaction with them on, on Mars Hill. Uh, but at Athens, he was uh, there waiting for, for Silas and Timothy to come to him because they had been uh, left in Berea. And when they come to him in Athens, uh, Paul, concerned for their faith, sends Timothy to go back and check on them. Uh, we can read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and see the purpose of that. He said, I, I wanted to make sure that by, by some means the tempter would have tempted you and our labor among you, our work among you, would have been in vain. So he sends Timothy back to uh, Thessalonica uh, to encourage them because of the, the persecution that they had endured in the founding of that, that congregation there and also to, to obtain a report of their faith. So that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, we see a, a very broad introduction uh, to the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul, in writing to the, to the church at Thessalonica, uh, this was written directly after or sometime after his, uh, his receiving of this report of their faith. After checking up on them, of hearing of how they were doing, he set out, uh, many believe when he was at Corinth, that 18-month period that he spent there ministering in Corinth, that Paul penned uh, this first book to the Thessalonian church. And there's uh, several things of note. A lot of times when we see an epistle written by Paul, we'll see specific false teaching or false doctrine being addressed. Uh, we can see that in the, most notably in the church at Corinth, uh, as they often get a bad rap for, and, and also the church at Galatia. We see uh, several things being addressed there. But there's no false teaching specifically addressed in the church of Thessalonica. Uh, there could be a couple different reasons for that. One could be because this church was very newly founded, uh, there wasn't really much of an opportunity yet for a lot of uh, false doctrine and false teaching to make itself into the church and to infiltrate the church in that way. Uh, but he encourages the, the church at Thessalonica to holiness. He encourages them to brotherly kindness. He encourages them to, uh, to a right relationship and a right standing with those even outside of the church. He also writes to encourage them concerning believers who had died. There seemed to be a question of what happens to you after you die, after a believer dies, what, what then? And so he encourages them in chapter 4, I'm, I'm sure a passage that many of us are familiar with. And then in, in 1 Thessalonians, we see a great emphasis on the, the, the return of Christ. Every single chapter, uh, Paul is very careful to, to make mention of the return of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 10, in uh, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, and also chapter 4, that notable passage uh, verse 13 through 18, and also in chapter 5, regarding the time, uh, the timing of the Lord's coming. So he writes to them specifically, and he encourages them, but one of, the, one of the interesting things that we find, and that we don't often see, is a, a strong affirmation and confirmation of their conversion, of the work that God had done in them, the work that he was continuing to do through them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verse 3, uh, we see Paul starting off his letter, and a lot of times it's, it's very interesting, we, we tend to skip over some of the, uh, the pleasantries, uh, shall we say, of the letter. We, a lot of times we'll skip over the apostolic greeting, and we'll just, if not, we not skip over it, we'll just kind of rush through it. Uh, but here, Paul is writing to this church at Thessalonica, and he's very careful uh, in verse number uh, 2 and following to... Uh, to really communicate some, some really important things. Uh, notice in verse number two, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, 
Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we find Paul uh, thanking God, offering a prayer of thanksgiving for this church at Thessalonica, and a thanksgiving related to three specific aspects of their life and of their walk with the Lord. Uh, The first one that we see is uh, found here in verse number three. He says, we remember constantly before God these three things. Number one, your work of faith. Secondly, your labor of love. And third, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And just for a few, few moments today, I'd like to kind of hone in on these three specific things and see how they specifically uh, were born out in the lives of the, the Thessalonian believers and how they should uh, present themselves in our lives as believers today. Notice, first of all, in, in verse 3, he says, your work of faith. There's a couple of things I'd like to, to draw attention to before we get into all, of, all three of these things, but uh, many times we, we tend to uh, misunderstand or misinterpret uh, parts of Scripture. Uh, many, many people have looked at, at this passage, at other passages, and, and draw a very strong relationship between our work and our faith. And there is a strong relationship between our, our work uh, for the Lord and our faith, but it's not the relationship that many people would like to claim. Uh, there's obviously uh, many churches out there that teach today that, that salvation is a work of God that starts in you by grace, but it is completed or, or comes to full f- fruition through our works. And that is not what, what Scripture teaches. And so when looking at these three uh, aspects of their, of their Christian life, their religion, their, their spiritual walk with God, we need to recognize that, that what we're drawing attention to here in their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope is that there is a, an object here, something that he is uh, confirming, something that he is uh, commending in their life, but there's also the cause we see. We don't just see the action, we see what it is that prompted this action to come about. So it is with this, these three aspects, their work of faith. This is a work that was borne out by their faith in the Lord. This labor that he mentions is a labor that was prompted by their love for God and by their love for one another. And lastly, the steadfastness of hope. Uh, there was a steadfastness, a perseverance that was prompted by their hope that they had in Christ. And so just by way of preface, I, lest we misunderstand, we need to come, to come to Scripture understanding these specific things, that this work of faith is something that God was doing in them. And all of these attributes that we see in their life, uh, I, I think I, I don't need to, to state this very clearly for us, but this is all the work of God. Uh, we can't look within ourselves and say, well, man, I, I'm just so good. I did this and this and that and X, Y, Z, and man, I'm just such an exemplary believer, aren't I? No, we, we can only look within ourselves and recognize the goodness that is in us because of God. There is no good thing in us by nature but it is the, the grace and mercy of God that God has shown so benevolently to us uh, that we can have these positive things and do these good works for the Lord. So notice uh, the first thing. He says, remembering without ceasing, remembering constantly mentioning your work of faith. Your work of faith. There's, a, a, I believe, a direct parallel in, uh, between the, the three things, the work, the labor, and the steadfastness here in verse number 3, uh, in verse number 9, and verse number 10. So he says, your work of faith. Verse number 9, it says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols. There's their work of faith. Notice what they turned to God from idols to do, to serve the living and true God. There's their labor of love. In verse number 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what is this work of faith that we see? The work of faith that we see was their turning. Their turning to God from their idols. Uh, as, as believers, 
having been saved out of so many different things, we see the importance uh, of having a, a, a faith that reveals itself in our life and in our work. We could uh, turn easily to James. We'll go there in just a minute. Uh, but and notice the, the, the imperative that we have uh, to have a faith that is lively, a faith that is working. In fact, uh, in fact why don't we turn there now and we'll, uh, we'll go back to a couple of the verses uh, here in just a minute. James chapter 2 and verse number 14. James offers two rhetorical questions. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it if, if, if someone claims to be a believer and claims to have a, a right theology, a right doctrine of God, and have a right relationship with God, and all you see from their life is exactly that, their words, their claim. Jesus, his, Jesus himself stated in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in your name we've cast out devils, and in your name we've done many wonderful works? Well, that's good, but... It's a profession. It's their statement. Uh, it's very easy to claim something. Isn't that true? It's very easy to say something is true, but it's another thing for it to actually be the truth. Uh, with the, the uh, overwhelming uh, influx of, of media and, and news and all the things that we have today, we often hear about these stories where someone claims that this was true and come to find out, you know, Facts are relatively easy, easily obtainable for those who are seeking them, and uh, a lot of times it finds out that it's not true. Or uh, allegations are made about somebody, and sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. Uh, someone claims to have this great thing that they've done, and turns out that they just plagiarized it all and stole somebody else's work. So it's one thing to say that we have faith, but it's another thing to, to have a proof, a living, abiding proof that we have faith, and that is borne out by our works. He says, what good is it if you say you have faith but don't have works? Well, the answer to this is obvious. It's no good at all. Second uh, rhetorical question he asks is, is this. Can that faith, can the faith that claims uh, to have a, a relationship with God, but does not prove it by our good works and our actions, can that faith save him? I think the answer to this would obviously be no. It's one thing to say that we have faith in God, but it's another thing to have a faith that works itself out within our lives, a faith that is unquestionable being proven by our good works, by our work for the Lord, by our love for others. Here, the church at Thessalonica had a faith that was borne out by their works. It wasn't as though the church at Thessalonica was gathered together and said, yeah, man, I'm just so glad I'm a Christian. Yeah, me too. And uh, that's great. Let's go home. And that's it. There's, it, was a, it wasn't a shallow, superficial thing that we see. It was a deep-rooted, life-altering faith that they had. You say, how did this evidence itself in their, in their life? Notice uh, what it says here. He says, you turned to God from idols. Notice this wasn't something that they were saying of themselves. Uh, in the previous verses, he said, the church of Thessalonica, you have been an example of the believer. Even being newly formed, just months old in your faith, you've been examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, um, kind of a little geography lesson. Macedonia was the northern part of Greece, and then Achaia was the southern peninsula of Greece, uh, where Athens is located. But he says, your faith towards God has been exemplary, not only in Thessalonica, but also in all of these other places throughout all of Macedonia, throughout all of Achaia, your faith has been exemplary. And in verse number nine, he says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. The work that they had in their life was a work of, of putting away their previous works, putting away their false gods, putting away their idols, and worshiping only the one true God. Religiously, those uh, aligned in Thessalonica, the Greeks were, were aligned in, and uh, were committed to the Greek pantheon of gods. 
uh, and uh, I would be a, a short on much time if I tried to uh, outline all of the, the names of all of the gods that the Greeks worshipped. There was uh, not just one or two or twelve or twenty, there were hundreds and hundreds of gods that they dedicated uh, their worship to. And here, the, the, the church of Thessalonica, in coming to the Lord and recognizing his, his uh, supremacy over all of these false gods, recognizing the true nature of uh, his son, Jesus Christ, and his atonement for sin, having come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they made a very quick uh, priority of putting away all of these other things, these false gods in their life. This is truly the work of a believer. Putting away all of the things that would exalt itself against the one true God. Idols of the heart. Secret sin. Whatever it is, the work of a true believer is to put away the things in our life that compete with God because he is to be the preeminent one. He's to be the only one that we have this worship for and this allegiance to. So their faith in God caused them to turn away. And notice the the dichotomy we find here in verse number 9 between God and between these idols. He says, For they themselves report report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve, notice, the living and true God. And saying that these uh, idols were uh, false, or in saying that God is living and God is true, it's also saying that these idols were false and lifeless. Uh, we often see in Scripture uh, uh, the, the picture being painted of how these, these idols are, are made of wood. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they can't speak. Yes, there's form, but there's no life in it. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Elijah as he was on uh, Mount Carmel uh, debating and, and going back and forth with the prophets of Baal. And uh, as they carried about in their worship, uh, seeking a blessing from, from their God uh, for hours and hours and hours on end, uh, Elijah kind of gets, gets smart. Maybe, maybe you need to speak a little bit louder. Uh, maybe your God's sleeping. Uh, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's gone somewhere. A uh, mocking uh, the false nature of their God that they were worshiping. And uh, truly, no greater, uh, no greater truth could be found than when Elijah prayed uh, just a, a short prayer. Not a very long, very elaborate prayer, but a short prayer. Sixty-some words it was. And the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed the altar, consumed the water, consumed uh, the sacrifice, everything there was. And after the end of that, what did the people say? The Lord... He is God. The Lord, He is God. So here the, the Thessalonian church uh, worked. There was a work that was borne out by their faith. They turned to God from their idols to serve the living and the true God. As I was saying before, there is a misunderstanding in many, many, many churches that claim to be Christian. And they say, well, you know, your, your faith is completed. Your salvation is eventually completed by your good works by your adding to what God has already started in you. And I'm here to say that nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing good that we can add to our salvation, to what God has done. In fact, anything that we would try to add to the work of God in us is actually a detraction from his work. It's an insult to the finished work that Jesus Christ offered on Calvary. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I was very um, thankful uh, last week as we heard from Pastor Martin about the, the peace, the shalom. Not just uh, simply, and this came up in our, our men's meeting last night, not just being a, a cessation of war, a cessation of fighting, but it's actually a wellness of relationship. We don't just have that, that ceasefire with God. We don't just have a, a uh, removal of the anger and the wrath that God had for us, for our sin. But we have, on the contrary, a blessing. We have a good, 
relationship with God. We are not, on, not just uh, ceasing in our anger towards one another, but we, have a, we can actually talk. We can have a good relationship. Um, I, I think many of us, in fact, all of us, I'm sure, have had somebody in our lives that either we wrong them or they wrong us, and uh, some party, who, whether it be them or us, whether it be the wronged or the one who did the wronging, uh, recognizes it, and we go to one another, we reconcile that relationship, and uh, many times if we're still bitter, somebody has wronged us, and they come to us, and they're like, man, I'm sorry, and you're just like, I don't know. What you said to me, man, that was, that hurt. And a lot of times we'll carry that, that, that bitterness. Yeah, we, we've, we've said the words, I forgive you. Yeah, we've, we've gone down that road, but often we kind of harbor that that resentment in our hearts. I uh, think of a, a, a lady we knew, and um, there was a, and I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to even say this, but uh, there were many, many situations. There was a pastor and his wife that we knew, and there were many situations that happened in their church over 20-some years. And um, very difficult very difficult situations, situations where they were wronged, where they were hurt by many different people. And uh, there was forgiveness, there was reconciliation, there was restoration. But many times uh, there was the slightest little thing that you would do. And all of a sudden, all of the things that were quote-unquote forgiven that were forgotten about came rushing back at breakneck speed. The littlest thing would set it off, and all of a sudden, everything, and well, I just can't believe, and you know what, this is the same thing, and they would just, man, they would just plow into it. Rehashing all of these sins that had supposedly been confessed and forsaken. But folks, that's not the, that's not the way it is with God. When we come to God by faith and confess our sin, the Bible tells us he is faithful, he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He doesn't cover our sin specifically. He removes it. As we heard in Sunday school, your sin is atoned for, your sin is purged. We know that salvation is not by our works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast or brag about it. We are justified freely by faith that is in Christ Jesus. We know that as, as believers, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us, and he takes upon himself our sin. But there is something to be said about the validity of one's faith evidenced by their works, and this goes, leads us back to James chapter 2. James says later in that passage, he says, you can, man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, if you want to know if you're a true believer or not, you can look at your works and see. Does your work bear out the faith that you claim to have? He uses the illustration of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? What he's saying is you, you can see how his faith was at work in doing that, how his faith was eventually vindicated and justified uh, in God, but it was justified by works. We see uh, how that works uh, evidence the faith that he claimed to have. Rahab the harlot, was she not justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way? The faith that she had in God was a faith that worked, a faith that evidenced itself in our lives. So we recognize the, the balance Good works do not contribute to our salvation, but they are a confirmation of the saving work that God has performed in us. And this was true of the Thessalonian believers. He says, you turned to God from these idols. You put away these things. There was a change in your life, a change that was palpable, that was evidenced and, and also attested to by many different people, not just yourselves. It was a work of faith. Secondly, he, he draws attention to the, the second thing here. He says, your labor of love. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith 
and your labor of love. In, uh, in modern times, we tend to equate the two. Work and labor are pretty much one and the same thing, right? You go to work, and you labor, and you do these things, and it's an action. It's something that's done, and you're done, and you, you go home. Um, there's, there's a slight difference between these two things in, uh, in the original languages. Uh, the, the word work found in verse number three, the work of faith is the word ergon. Um, your work, it's an action, something that is done, it's effort that is expended. But labor takes that to a whole nother level. Uh, A.L. Moore in his uh, commentary on Thessalonians says of labor, he says it, Labor denotes arduous, wearying toil involving sweat and fatigue. This isn't just a work that we do. This isn't just a desk job. This isn't just a, a papers. That, this is something that is physical, that is visceral, that we have expended all of our energy in the pursuit of this thing. It's a labor uh, many times the, the word uh, in Scripture, the word labor, and we see it here in Thessalonians, the word labor and travail are mentioned hand in hand. Labor and travail. Uh, talking about, a, a, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, actually, talking about a, a woman in labor. Uh, those, those pains, the, the, the terror uh, of those pains and the, the sweat and the blood and the tears that are expended. This is what he's talking about. This is what he means by our labor of love. What do we see in the church at Thessalonica? We see here in verse number nine, he says, you turn to God from idols to what? To serve. To serve the living and the true God. Brothers and sisters, we are not saved to sit and to simply enjoy the benefits that we have in Christ. We have not been saved to just meet together on Sunday and to go about our week and nothing come of it. We are saved to serve God. We are saved to honor Him. We are saved to work for Him. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, the very passage that we use to show that faith or that our salvation is not something that is gained by our works, uh, verse number 10 says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, that we should live in that way. God has a plan for those of us who are believers, and that is to work for him, to do good works in his name, to honor him, to glorify him with our life, with our being. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This labor that was uh, evidenced in their life was a labor that was born out of love for God. Your labor of love. Uh, my sister, when we were growing up, my sister was a, a very bossy uh, sibling. Very bossy. Um, kind of like my dad was when he was a kid. Uh, my dad was notorious for bossing all of his four brothers around. And um, my sister, this is, this is how she did it, okay? I'm very competitive. My dad's very competitive. Um, and so she would tell me, um, hey, Josh, uh, why don't you go down to downstairs and get me whatever it is? And I'm like, no, I don't want to. And uh, I don't know why this, and looking back on it, I'm thinking, man, I was so stupid back then. Um, this one thing just held this sway over me. I don't know why. Um, but she's like, I'll time you. I'll time you to see how quickly you can do it. I bet you can't do it in under 20 seconds. So, of course, yeah, of course I'll do it then. And she would, uh, I, I would go and do it. And if, the first couple times I did that, you know, she actually did time me. Um, later on, she told me she'd time me. I got back and I'm like, how long did it take? And she's like, I don't know. I wasn't counting. Um, but one time, she, um, <laughs> one time she said to me, she's like, Josh, do you love me? I said, yeah, of course I love you. You're my sister. I, yeah, I love you. And she said, um, in a very blasphemous way, keep my commandments. I'm like, man. What was she, what was she getting at? I, I think in a very um, a wrong way, I think. That there's a very specific context to that, and I don't think it's right for us to be claiming that context for ourselves. But I think the, 
I think the principle held true in many, in many regards. Do you love me? Husbands, do you love your wives? Wives, do you love your husbands and your children? How is our love shown? Our love is shown by labor. Cleaning the house. Then having to clean it five minutes later. And ten minutes after that. And fifteen minutes following that. Conquering that stack of dishes with four kids in the house. Only to come back and find 15 minutes later that 10 new cups have been gotten out of the cabinet. All filled with water to equal levels sitting on the countertop. So what is it? It's, it's that labor. It's that toil. It's the sweating. It is the, the exhaustion and fatigue coming to the end of our day and saying, I can't even breathe right now. I can't even do anything. I have no energy whatsoever. I've expended all of my energy in laboring because of the love that I have for my family. Same is true with our Lord. Christ, and this was the actual context in which it was said, Christ said, if ye love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. Do we love God today? Do we truly love God? I'm not talking about a love that just says, yes, I love you with no understanding of what love truly is or what comes out of that love. Do we love God? The Thessalonian church did. They loved God. And he says this labor of love, this labor that was evident in your life was born out of love for the Lord. Notice in the, the, the verses in between verse 3 and verse number 9 what it is they did. He says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are specific things here that, he, that Paul points to and commends them for and says, we can see that your faith was real, we can see that your love is real, because of your work, because of your labor. Notice what it is they did. Uh, they, first of all, they proclaimed the word of the Lord. He says, you became imitators of us. Uh, in verse 6, in verse number uh, 7, you're exemplary to all the believers. In verse number 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. You know, we think, of, uh, we think on a very broad, uh, much broader scale than, than uh, they did in biblical times. It's nothing for us to, to get in our car and to drive 100 miles, 200 miles. Um, not a big deal at all, just a, just a few hours. But uh, we, we are, are very broad in our thinking in many times uh, in that respect, uh, location-wise. But uh, there in, the, in, in biblical times, it was a very different story. Uh, many people were poor. They did not have in modes of transportation. They didn't have a horse to ride or they didn't have a, uh, an ox and a cart to pull it. They couldn't just up and uh, get on the, the nearest highway and head out at 70 miles an hour down towards Athens, you know, for dinner that night. Or, uh, they couldn't do those things. So when he says here that, you're, that you sounded forth the word of the Lord in Macedonia and Achaia, these are two very large areas of land. He says, your faith toward God, your labor of love toward him and towards others was evidenced in your proclaiming, sounding forth the word of God. Isn't, isn't it this that we are called to do as believers? To proclaim the truth of God's word to our community, to our family, to our friends, to our acquaintances, our coworkers. We're called to be an example of a true believer in God. 
were called to proclaim forth his word, but they didn't just do this in a, a very loving, very accepting context. They did this in the, the context of persecution. They did this with religious leaders down their throat about their treason, about their sedition towards the, uh, towards the political rulers, and obviously their forsaking of their uh, gods. They did this in a context where it was hostile. It was not a, a pleasant thing to be known as a Christian, of all things. But still, their labor toward God was faithful because of their love for him. And may I remind us all, 1 John says, we love him because he first loved us. It is because of God's love for us that we love him. It's because of God's love for us that we are changed by it and seek to honor him and glorify him and to proclaim his truth among all people. This was their love. They served the living and the true God. Their love toward God was keeping the commandments of God, was encouraging one another. Not only did they show their love to God, but they showed their love to their brethren. Think about it. There, there's a lot of things that, uh, that new Christians need to be educated in, right? I mean, we have discipleship classes. Uh, we have discipleship materials that we can go through, and we can take somebody through the doctrines uh, contained in Scripture and what we were to believe about God and what the doctrine of, of Christ and the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and uh, all of these things. We can take them through and, and teach them a lot of these things, obligations that we have as believers to one another, all of the things that Scripture commands us to do. We can show a new believer, but these new believers didn't really have anyone to show them. Here they heard the word of God, they believed, they had just a short time with Paul and Silas, and then uh, by night, in secrecy, uh, their preacher, the, the one that they had heard of Jesus Christ through, had to leave. They didn't have that resource that they could go to. They didn't have the internet that they could just hop on and say, hey, let's search for something. What does it say about the Bible? You know, what, what does the Bible say about this or that? But one thing that they had down pat was their love towards the brethren. Uh, turn to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4. The, the Apostle Paul here in, in chapter 4, he's encouraging them to their, uh, to their living, to their life before God and before others. He calls them to holiness in chapter 4 in the first uh, eight verses. But in verse number 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. A lot of times we're having to encourage one another to brotherly love, right? No, don't cuss out your brother. Don't yell at your brother. Don't hold grudges against your brother. Forgive your brother. Help your brother. Encourage your brother. Build your brother up. Don't tear them down. A lot of times, just the simplest of things that should be uh, elementary in the Christian life, we have to emphasize. But he, he says here, he says, you know, I was going to say something about brotherly love, but you don't need anyone to write to you about brotherly love because this is what you're already doing towards all the brothers in Macedonia. But we encourage you to keep it up and to do it all the more, more and more. They evidenced their love toward God in keeping his commandments, and they evidenced their love towards their brethren in encouraging and strengthening and edifying. All of the things that we are commanded to do in Scripture, love one another, encourage one another, build one another up, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, teach, admonish, confess your sins to one another. All of these things, you say, yeah, man, that's easy to do. But often it's not. Many times we place the priority on our life and our uh, check account or our timetable or our little world that we often forsake one another and do not follow through on the commands that God has given to us in Scripture. These are difficult things for us to do. 
I think that's evidenced by the fact that many times we don't do them. We prefer the easy way out. Well, I'm sure they'll be fine. I'm sure everything's good. We don't see a brother or sister in church on Sunday. We often say, well, you know, you're probably just tired. Maybe they're sick, getting over something. Maybe they had to work. But how many times do we actually reach out to them and encourage them and let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. If there's anything I can do to help you, let us know. That's what we're here for. These are difficult things to do. These these are things that require time. They require energy. They require sweat and tears and blood. They will use up our resources, but we are commanded by God to have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Christ gives a command to love one another. And in verse 35, he said, By this will everyone know that you're my disciples, if you have love one towards another. I I remember hearing a story um, about an evangelist, a, a pastor, and uh, he, he, his wife was a Christian for many years, and he never, never, ever, ever, ever wanted to go to church. He always said no. She'd invite him every single Sunday. Man, won't you please come to church with me today? Nope, nope, nope. For years and years and years. He was a Marine. Hard man. I don't need church. I don't need God. But uh, he came to church one Sunday evening and um, heard a sermon that night they had a business meeting, and um, apparently no one told him that he wasn't supposed to be there <laughs> as someone that wasn't a member of the church. And so here they start their business meeting, and I, I don't know exactly what they were talking about, but it was a very heated discussion, and it got to the point where two of the deacons were actually having a fist fight in the aisle. I mean, it was a knockdown, drag-out business meeting. Um, and <laughs> this Marine said, man... If I had known churches like this, I would have come a long time ago. You say, why did you tell that story? A lot of times what people see, what unbelievers see, is, is not the love that we have towards one another. But it's the harsh words. It's the talking down to work to, with our coworkers about our brother or sister in Christ. Well, there's somebody at our church, man, they're just, and you just go on and on and on and on and on. That's what they see. But our love toward God and our love towards our brothers will be evidenced not by our criticism and our harping on them and our, our tearing them down and slander and all of those different things that sometimes, if we're not careful, we engage in. It'll be evidenced by our love, by our encouraging, by our strengthening. You say, how important is love? Well, in First John it says this, if you don't love, you don't know God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. If you love not, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we could spend all day in that chapter. But in the end, in the the final analysis, Paul says, uh, there abides faith, hope, and love. These three things evidenced in the, the life of the Thessalonians was where there are three cardinal things in, in Scripture, evidences of, of a believer. He says, but the greatest of these is love. How's our love toward God? Are we keeping the commands of God? Are we fleeing temptation? Are we fighting sin? Are we reaching out to those in our lives that are not believers? Are we proclaiming the word of God? Are we loving one another as we ought to The church at Thessalonica did. They had a love toward God. A love that evidenced itself in their labor, their toil. The last thing we'll see very quickly is their steadfastness of hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I said before that the the coming of Christ is a theme throughout the, the passage here, this book. And truly it is. He says the third thing that they he thanked God for. 
was their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You are steadfast in your hope. Again, think about it. This church was not a church that was well accepted and promoted in their community. This was a church that was formed under persecution and continuing persecution. He said, in the midst of all of the persecution and the trials that you're enduring in your faith, you remain steadfast in your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10 of the same, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This verse is just packed full of, of Bible truth. Uh, first of all, we see the foundation of our hope. How can we have a hope in God? Well, we, because we see what God has already done. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Just like Christ was raised up from the dead, we too one day will be raised to eternal life. We see the completion of our hope. This is such a wonderful thought. Deliverance from the wrath to come. Brothers and sisters, we are not under judgment. We are not under the wrath of God if we have trusted by faith in his son Jesus Christ, in his payment for our sin on Calvary. We will not endure that wrath, but Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God so that we might be partakers of his divine nature, so that we might have forgiveness of sins, so that we might enjoy the benefits and the joys of heaven. Here is the foundation and the completion of our hope. But there's two things I think that we can see from the church at Thessalonica that, that they did uh, that evidenced their, their hope in Christ. First thing that they did is they looked for the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice they were waiting for his son from heaven. They were waiting for him. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, verse number uh, 19 Again, another mention of the return of Christ. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. He said, one day Christ is going to return and this is what we can boast about before him. Your love for him. Your steadfastness in him. Uh, Chapter 3. In verse number 11 and following, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4. Uh, the education and their, the, the encouragement concerning those who had uh, deceased, those who, were, who had died, who had fallen asleep, he says, if we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. There is hope beyond the grave for the believer. And they were looking, looking for that hope. The second thing that they were doing is that they were living in light of the coming of Christ. I think this is something that uh, I, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I find myself failing at many times. Living consciously in the presence of God, expecting his return. I think many, many of the, the, the trivialities in our life, the things that we engage in that really have no lasting value uh, would be done away with if we lived in light of the coming of Christ. If we knew the date and time of the coming of Christ, how would that alter our life. If we knew that Christ was going to return in a week and a half, what would we spend our time in this last week and a half on earth? What would we be doing? How would that alter our actions? How would that alter our words? How would that alter our, our efforts to evangelize and to preach the gospel to our family and to those without the church? I dare say it would make a drastic difference in our lives. So why doesn't it make that difference now? Do we truly believe that Christ will return imminently at any moment? Are we looking for his coming? Are we expecting his coming? 
One thing that I was, uh, when, I, when I was a kid, I heard a, a preacher um, preach a message about uh, looking, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior from Titus. And one thing he, he, he brought out was very interesting. He's like, you know, we're, we're looking for his appearing. Let's never forget that. We're looking for his appearing, not our disappearing. Well, man, let's just, let's just live any way we want to. There's, you know, it's very interesting to see how when, when people truly believe that Jesus is coming at a certain time, that how that affects the way they live. Some, some people, uh, you know, back when Y2K, remember Y2K? Um, I was a scoundrel when I was growing up, and when the year 2000 hit, I went down to our basement right about the time the ball dropped, and I hit the main breaker coming into our house. It was awesome. I never regret that. That was, that was wonderful. But what do a lot of people do? A lot of people did one of two things. They stored up a lot of things thinking that the, the world was going to come to an end as they knew it and they made, made preparations and they stored up all of these things. Other people, uh, in, in doing that, spent tens of thousands of dollars preparing for the end of the world. Uh, other people said, man, if, if the world's going to end, why not just rack up all the debt that we can possibly imagine, you know? Uh, and just all the banks are going to lose all those records, right? Wrong. <laughs> We need to be living in light of the return of Christ. And again, his appearing, not our disappearing. So what, what can we say by way of application? There's a couple of things. One, these three attributes, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ, these are works of God. This is not something that we can stir up but this is an evidence of the work that God has begun in us. And if, if hearing and, and saying, man, I'm not really making an effort to mortify my sin. I'm not really making an effort to live a holy life before the Lord. You know what? I don't really love my brothers like I should. I don't, I don't love my sister like I should in Christ. I, I, don't, I don't have these things evident in my life. I think we need to look inwardly and to examine ourselves. These are attributes of a believer that are present in every believer. It is a work of God. Secondly, our, our labor toward God and our fellow believers will cost us our time, our energy, our emotions. It'll cost us tears. It'll cost us financially. It'll be a sacrifice to love God and love others like we ought to. But God has called us to a life of holiness. God has called us to a life of love toward him and toward others. And lastly, we need to do our best to live in light of his return. What will you be doing when Christ returns? How will you be living your life and conducting your business? I pray God will help us to live in light of his return, to, to live always, to, to labor always with love in our hearts, to work because of the faith that we have in Christ. May God help us with this. Let's pray. Our dear Father, God, we come before you and Lord, we, we recognize that, that we are not the end-all, be-all. Lord, that we are not the standard by which we are going to be judged Lord, we can't compare ourselves to others and think ourselves good. Lord, because we are not being judged by others, we are ultimately being held to a standard that is so far above us, and that is your holiness. Lord, as we heard in Sunday school, you are holy, Lord, to a superlative degree. You are holy, holy, holy. And God, I pray that you would work in us true, lasting holiness, Lord, repentance, humility. God, we do thank you for the work that you have begun in us. Lord, the work that you are continuing in us. And I pray that you would uh, complete it. And Lord, we know you will be faithful to do that because you said you will. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in a way that is in keeping with the profession of faith that we claim to have in you. 
Lord, may our love be evidenced by our actions. May our faith work itself out in our lives. And Lord, may we live expecting your return. Help us, I pray. Go with us now, Lord, from this place. Help us to to live for you this week. Lord, to glorify you, to, to speak to others about the faith that we have in Christ. May you bless us for having been here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.